Welcome to the Independent News Hour on WBAI 99.5 FM in New York. I'm John Tarleton, editor in chief of the Independent, New York City's progressive newspaper and website. That's I N D Y P E N D N T dot O R G. In our first segment, we will talk about 9 11 and the long rebuild at the World Trade Center site that has been taking place over the past 20 years. In the immediate aftermath of the terrorist attacks that took place 20 years ago this week, hopes were running high that something profound would emerge at the site where 3,000 people were killed and hundreds more first responders were later poisoned and died of their illnesses. It hasn't quite turned out that way, however. Joining us this evening to break down what happened at Ground Zero over the past 20 years and why is Todd Fine. Todd is president of the Washington Street Advocacy Group which promotes historic preservation and historical memory in lower Manhattan and across New York City. He has an in-depth special feature that will appear in the September edition of The Independent that goes to press in a few days that looks at uh, this history. Todd, thanks for joining us on WBAI Radio. Thanks for having me, John. You bet. It's always great to have you back with us. So let's start from the beginning here. The 9-11 attacks happened 20 years ago. Uh, this Saturday in uh, lower Manhattan. And in the aftermath, uh, a a lot of people were hopeful that something profound would emerge on on that site. Can you start by talking about some of the expectations around what the rebuild could have been? Yeah. When, I mean, when we talk about the expectations, it's sometimes, you know, maybe it was a little fantastical. I mean, in some cases people wanted, skyscrapers or buildings to fill a hole they had in their hearts or maybe send a message to the terrorists, I guess, of, of, of how strong America was. So people wanted a lot of different things, but I think what people most wanted was something that would represent their values, what they, what they wanted New York to be, what they hoped America would be. And so the way it emerged with all of this, you know, driven by money and private interests and these long delays and fights, I think soured some of those ideals. Right. And, and can you talk about a key figure in all this, uh, Larry Silverstein, as well as the scale of uh, uh, federal uh, funding that flowed into lower Manhattan to potentially make, uh, you know, something really powerful happen down there. Right. Well, the, w- one of the things that drove and, it sort of inexplicably, the entire reconstruction was was this figure of Larry Silverstein, who only six weeks before the attacks had signed this uh, lease to uh, to take over the World Trade Center. Uh, he had a lot of debt. It was heavily leveraged in the deal. Um, yet uh, you would think maybe after such a major attack, people would step back and, you know, the government might decide what what should we do with it? But he really asserted himself immediately. He claimed that he could get a large insurance payout uh, that would fund the redevelopment. And he claimed that his lease gave him the ability to re- to rebuild or the, the right to rebuild, which, you know, probably another a strong governor or mayor might have been able to push back on. But people let him uh, get away with that. And so a lot of the struggle over the next 10, 20 years comes from these uh, government agencies uh, figuring out what they should do in, you know, and how they should deal with this powerful actor who's who's always demanding various things, and also also 
he also often feels uh, affronted or let down by government agencies that don't meet his timelines or the timing that he needs, he thinks, to make money. Now, at the same time that there's this private interest that wants to uh, assert itself and make a profit at the World Trade Center, there are, there are after September 11th, there are all these public groups, these civic groups that are established, people who live in local uh, lower Manhattan, but also across the city who are that the reconstruction should have civic aims that aren't just about office towers or replacing the same square foot of office space. People talk about uh, new transportation linkages, hospitals, affordable housing, uh, things that would that would sort of sort of say that we we don't just have to think of this you know out of this attack just build office space. We can use this this site and also the federal funds to do something that would benefit all of society, also maybe all classes of people not just the rich. And so one of the stories I think of the reconstruction is how those dreams sort of get whittled down. Yes. And speaking of public agencies, a a key agency in all of this is the uh, Port Authority of New York and New Jersey, which oversaw the the construction of the original World Trade Center in the early, in the late sixties and early seventies when Nelson Rockefeller was a governor of New York. And of course he and his brother, David Rockefeller, uh, head of uh, Chase Manhattan Bank were really sort of the driving force behind the uh, original World Trade Center. And, but you, can you talk about the role of Port Authority? Um, obviously, they were at the center of the of the building the first World Trade Center, but can you talk about their role in the rebuild of the second World Trade Center? Sure, sure. And I think one of the things that makes this space so unique or or at least confusing to a lot of people, is that it's not really city property. Um, it's it's land that's controlled by the Port Authority, owned by the Port Authority, which means it doesn't fall under city zoning. It doesn't have to pay property taxes. And the mayor and the city council don't really have a lot of say in what exactly happens there. So the Port Authority um, also was able to take uh, some prerogative in making these decisions, which controlled by the governors of New New York and New Jersey, of course. So over time, a lot of people wondered, you know, why is the governor or why is this New Jersey have any say over something that was so meaningful uh, to New Yorkers at that time? Now, not only was there the Port Authority, but there was also another agency called the LMDC that was established um, right uh, after 9-11, which was uh, a public entity that was controlled half by the state and half by the city in theory. But the chairperson was set by the governor, which meant that the governor actually had authority over that, too. So the governor of the state really had extraordinary authority over the World Trade Center reconstruction in general. Right. And the LMDC, the Lower Manhattan Development Corporation. What what did uh, then Governor George Pataki do? What were his priorities and, and how did that um, drive the process in the in the first decade? Well, Pataki. uh had, like many politicians, you know, he had ambitions to maybe be president. And a lot of the whole country was looking at uh, the World Trade Center. Uh, they were hoping that, you know, there would be progress there, that there would be something people could be proud of. So Pataki kept trying to push things along in his own way, but sometimes it actually made things more difficult. Like he would intervene uh, he, he he kind of invented the name the Freedom Tower, for instance, in a speech without really running it by anyone. Or he he made choices about what the master plan would look like. He also intervened at one point to 
to eliminate uh, cultural activities that the LMDC had planned uh, for the middle of the World Trade Center site. But, but in general, he, he needed the World Trade Center to be a centerpiece of his, of his skill and his talents, but it didn't turn out that way even for him. Mm. And uh, can you also talk about the role of uh, families in, in, in this process, especially ones that uh, you know had a a you know pretty uh, right wing uh, take on on things and and had an agenda they wanted to yeah push well, for. I mean, there, now before we think of you know right wing families, there was also first sort of a general family sentiment yeah. that the, the the towers, the locations of the towers should be uh, protected, that they shouldn't necessarily build office space on top of the footprint of the towers, which a lot of them considered graveyards in a way. Sure. Um, but there was also this this kind of period where being a 9-11 family member uh, offered a lot of political currency, and, the, and that was on both sides. There were left-wing political family members, right-wing political family members. But one of the most interesting episodes um, – in the uh, in the redevelopment that I describe in, in the independent piece is how uh, the there were initial plans to put uh, in this cultural building that's in the middle of the memorial uh, a, a series of cultural institutions like the New York Drawing Center, dance companies, and a uh, a museum that would be dedicated to um, the history of American freedom called the International Freedom Center. A little little unusual, but that was the idea. But there were some. Uh, kind of right-wing uh, 9-11 family members, especially a woman named Deborah Burlingame, whose brother, whose brother died at the Pentagon, who objected and claimed that these cultural institutions might have left-wing politics or anti-American politics, or as they saw it, in their artwork. And she raised a big stir and had protests and Wall Street Journal op-eds and actually forced Pataki to pull the plug. So now that central building is just this you know, museum, this memorial museum, uh, very expensive and arguably a little bit dark and sinister in its presentation of 9-11, which cost $26 to go into. And a lot of New Yorkers, from what I've always gathered, stay away. Mm. And uh, can you talk about why the the costs of this uh, project uh, steadily spiraled upward? You know, it's interesting because people debate whether this was an extraordinary um, project or not. I mean, you have some numbers that are sort of out of control, like uh, the the PATH station, the Oculus, $4.6 billion, World Trade Center One, uh, $3.9 billion. But it is true that large private, public-private partnerships, you know, in our history do often go out of uh, above budget. Uh, one reason that it was really expensive was just practical, that the Port Authority wasn't just building you know, buildings, they are actually have this huge subterranean network of tunnels and things that are connected. It's a very complicated site. And they actually made decisions to make the site that way. Uh, even before a lot of the decisions about the specific buildings and memorial went forward. Uh, another reason that it, it became so expensive is that, you know, there was a desire to make things just extraordinary, you know, the greatest. So we had to build the, the tallest tower in the Western Hemisphere. They had to build the uh, this grand Oculus train station. And that, that pretty much used up all of the money that they were given, even though they had access to you know tens of billions of dollars uh, in federal support and other things. They couldn't even finish the basic plans for the site. 
which meant that a lot of these other priorities, uh, social priorities especially, were non-starters. Right. And, and can you describe the Oculus a little bit more? I uh, I went by there early this morning, and, and it, I hadn't looked at it in a while. It's a pretty extraordinary sight, um, though it, it maybe might have been um, more than we needed to spend on one subway station. But um, can you yeah. talk a little bit more about that structure? Yeah. Well, that's the architect is Santiago Calatrava, Spanish architect, who was already well known for building these very elaborate things that would go over budget. The original idea was that it would be sort of a dove. You know, when they announced it uh, to great fanfare, they, they let some doves fly away. They released some doves. Uh, and it originally, the original plan was that the, do- the uh, wings of the doves would actually retract. They open and retract, and on 9-11 especially, they would retract. Mm. Um, but that the engineering for that became so complicated on top of all, an, our project that was already way over budget. That uh, that was that that and along with other value engineering sort of scrapped it. It has all this very expensive Italian marble. Now there's still questions of leaks and and whether all of this stuff can be cleaned in the long term. Uh, it's it's going to be interesting to see how it turns out. It also has this big mall, Westfield Mall, in the center of it, which for some people sort of pollutes the idea that this was going to be this you know sort of transcendent peaceful space. It's become very commercial in its feel. But uh, that said, a lot of people seem to like taking selfies there, and it's somewhat popular. I don't know how popular it is among New Yorkers, though, versus popular among tourists. Yeah. Can you get into that a little bit more about how popular the World Trade Center site has become for tourists versus how uh, New Yorkers uh, look at it and interact with it? Yeah, I, I think that's one of the most distinguishing features of this World Trade Center. I mean, if you look, if you listen to, I, when I talk to New Yorkers, and that's part of the reason I wanted to write this piece uh, for The Independent, I never really hear people saying, oh, I love going to the World Trade Center, you know, oh, that Oculus Mall, and let's go to the 9-11 Museum. You know, it, it's just not a place that New Yorkers feel comfortable. Now, some of that might be because they have bad memories of 9-11 or it's too traumatic, but I think it's also because it's not a place that feels like New York. Uh, it's, it's very controlled. It's architecture is sort of fearful, uh, and scary. It doesn't really have a communal sensibility, but what it does have are these attractions. And this is sort of the continuation of New York, I think, as a city of attractions. We have a Ferris wheel in Times Square. We have, you know, everything, everything seems like it's a gimmick these days and it's attraction for others to make money. So we, we turn one World Trade Center, for instance, it costs, I think forty thirty two dollars to go to the top. Uh, we have the the nine eleven memorial costs twenty six dollars to get into the museum. The Oculus is a high end mall. Uh, it, it this it doesn't seem like a space that's really for New Yorkers, the average New Yorkers certainly. Mm. And, and it, but it is one of the most popular tourist sites in the city. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and that's I think a lot of New Yorkers can't un, pre understand that fully. Like why. Is there this voyeurism about September 11th? Is, are people going to the 9-11 Museum only because they want to pay respect to the people who died? Or is there this weird, traumatic, touristic impulse, this voyeurism um, that is sort of also reflected in the way our culture 
uses 9-11 and, and for nationalism and other things. And, and, and I think there's a need to critique what are we doing there? It's almost like we're, we're creating this sort of cultish corporate branding of an event that was traumatic to 9-11 for, for it was traumatic for New Yorkers, for other people to consume in ways that New Yorkers might not even agree with. Indeed. And, um, uh, Kind of going back to what they've created there, uh, can you talk about uh, how the World Trade Center site, say, compares to like uh, Hudson Yards or some of these other mega complexes that have been heavily subsidized that have emerged in recent uh, years? Well, I think looking back on it, uh, that's basically the model that they've chosen uh, is you get one or two developers who, you know, get special preference over a site. Uh, you subsidize them. You say it's for economic development, but uh, it's not always clear whether the public expenditure, you know, how that compares to the private uh, gain. Uh, and yeah, in this case, we have Silverstein, who is has two already has built two towers, and he also has seven World Trade Center. So he has three World Trade Center, four World Trade Center, seven World Trade Center. He has rights to two World Trade Center. Uh, he has uh, now the ability to maybe build a luxury residential building at Five World Trade Center in a joint venture with Brookfield, who already has the World Financial Center and other buildings in the vicinity. So by the time this is all said and done, uh, he they may merge with Brookfield to have a mega complex of, of 10, 11, 12 bu- buildings in the vicinity that make the World Trade Center pretty much a Hudson Yards. And, and who utilizes these buildings? Who are the tenants down there that um, are occupying these uh, these buildings? Well, that's been that's been one of the struggles is that there's not always a lot of transparency, and it's not. Some people would say, "Oh, yeah, there was a lot of demand for all this office space," but uh, you know, in some of these buildings, there are a lot of actually government agencies like the Port Authority and other federal agencies that have a space in these new towers. And that was actually part of the agreement to build them. Um, you have Condé Nast, which is in One World Trade Center, which is kind of the one company that a lot of people point to as a success. But they they almost left and during uh, the COVID situation. And apparently their rent is even way below the cost of the development. So we're subsidizing, in effect, Condé Nast to be there. Um, Spotify is in uh, one of the Silverstein Towers, so that's kind of one of their signature tenants. But it's, uh, you know, overall, when you look at it, they're not the biggest tenants. A lot of the bank, a lot of, well, a lot of big kind of Fortune 500 companies still seem like they prefer Midtown. Um, um, I think one of the issues also is that the financial firms don't necessarily want all the trading, big trading floors after, um, after the financial crisis. They're, they're, and a lot of these buildings were built on the assumption of the type of, you know, investment bankers, banks that, that, you know, existed and were big before the financial crisis. Right. And, and one other thing that's uh, striking when, when you're down in that area is uh, just down the street from the whole World Trade Center site is uh, Zuccotti Park, where uh, Occupy Wall Street uh, erupted in, and, and took root uh, 10 years ago this month. It's a month of a kind of a double anniversary, 20 years of 9-11 and 10 years since Occupy, um, which is something we're also going to be looking at in this uh, upcoming September edition. Uh, any any thoughts on that, on sort of the, the juxtaposition? Uh, I mean, obviously, the the 
the vibe around Occupy was very different than the vibe you you get when you walk around the um, World Trade Center site, but they're so close to each other. You know, I don't think that's an act uh, accident. I feel like there's something sort of, I don't know, maybe maybe that's a little bit too much, but there's there's something about this space that seems to kind of be this spiral uh, where all of the forces of our world come together. And maybe it's because of Lower Manhattan itself as the as the birthplace of New York City, which is the mega city that uh, you know inaugurated the global financial center mega city. Um, you have obviously the the forces of terrorism. You have this Wall Street. You have uh, the World Trade Center as as this big urban development project. Uh, there's something about Lower Manhattan that I think is a composite of our of the forces that that run our society and that that run our world and that's part of the reason why i feel like it's so important to scrutinize the uh, redevelopment of the world trade center because it, in a way it provides a microcosm for us to analyze all the forces that run our city or even our country right and um before we have to go here in a moment i, I know there's w- one more attempt to to ring uh, some uh uh, justice or equity out of uh, this uh, mega development project with uh, World Trade Center Building Five and, and efforts to turn that more toward affordable housing, which you're involved with. Can you describe that uh, before we have to go? Sure. Yeah. So there is there is one lot uh, that is up for grabs. It's a southern lot. It used to be the Deutsche Bank building uh, that that uh, some people may know had a fire in 2007 that killed two firefighters. Uh, the Port Authority and the LMDC have uh, did an RFP that concluded in February of this year saying that uh, Silverstein and Brookfield, once again, their, their former antagonists, uh, should have the rights to build an 80-story, 900-foot luxury residential tower at this site. And there are a lot of locals, especially locals who have experienced displacement or 9-11 survivors that feel that this needs to be 100% affordable as public land. I mean, that's a principle that a lot of people believe in, that public land should be 100% affordable housing, especially if, you know, it doesn't seem like there's any demand for office building right right now. Um, and so there's a movement. Uh, people can can search for uh, Tower 5, affordabletower5.com, uh, and uh, sign a petition. And there's efforts to to convince uh, the government. And actually, we have a lot of local uh, political support. Our Congressman Nadler, Carolyn Maloney, uh, the uh, local uh, city council uh, nominee, Christopher Marte, Yulene uh, New, uh, Mark, Mark Levine, Levine. A lot of politicians have, have also accepted this principle. So, uh, you know, it would, be, it would be a symbolic redemption of the World Trade Center to a degree. Um, we shouldn't say that it would reverse everything, all the mistakes. But if if we could produce 100 percent affordable housing there on government land, I think that would be a worthy thing to do. All right. Well, we'll have to leave it there. But uh, Todd Fine, uh, president of the Washington Street Advocacy Group, thank you so much for joining us this evening on 99.5 FM. Thank you, John. You bet. And again, uh, Todd's got a, a real bang up uh, special feature uh, that will be coming out in the September Independent. We'll hit the streets at the beginning of next week. We will probably have that article up online in the next couple of days at independent.org. So that's definitely something to look for, whether in print or online. Uh, Todd's coverage of what's been happening for the past 20 years down at uh, Ground Zero with the rebuild. So we'll be back after this short break, and we'll talk about the uh, reopening of New York City schools. 
and whether the city and the Department of Education are doing it right. Our next guest, uh, Amanda Vender, says there's uh, more that needs to be done. Listen, all you New Yorkers. Joe's. 